What's going on, Merv? Why did you and Mom name me after something that's bad? No, we didn't. Murphy's Law. Now, Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. What it means is that whatever can happen will happen. And that sounded just fine with us. So, Parth, what have you been eating? Monsieur Trent. Uh. Uh, it's good to see you. Nice to see that you're alive and well. Please speak to me in the Usted form only, please. Uh, to answer your question, I most recently had Buffalo Wild Wings. Whoa, B Dubs for short. Uh, what inspired dubs, yes. that? In terms of <clears throat> things I know about you, this is the most like out of character piece of information really? you've ever brought forth. I mean, not to say that you don't like chicken, but I don't know. That's just like a sports bar. Did you go and eat there, or did you just hit and run? No, no, no. We we got takeout. Um, my cousins, my cousins from Connecticut came over, and we decided we were gonna have we're gonna treat ourselves to some food. You know, some some high class establishment. Do you feel gluttonous? Uh, a little bit. Well, this is these are leftovers from yesterday. I remember uh, one time when I was fourteen, I went to Buffalo Wild Wings with my dad, and I guess trying to prove something to myself and probably to him, I got like one of the hotter sauces. Mm, and- a big mistake. A big mistake, not knowing what I was getting myself into, and I remember um, crying. Like it, w- it was like very unpleasant, and it, it, I ha- had to be sent back. It was inedible. Thankfully, we did not have that experience. Yeah, you weren't trying to prove a point. No. Uh, well, you see, Trent, it's it's not about the money. It's about sending a message. <laughs> nice. Um, believe it or not, I once had a birthday dinner at Buffalo Wild Wings. Uh, for many years, we would have it at Applebee's, and then we... And then we took a step up formally into Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah, I would say that's a step up. And then, I, and then I graduated from middle school, and and now we go, and now we go to Outback Steakhouse. Oh, so you you haven't had any growth. Um, so what did you have most recently? I had a Jersey Mike sandwich, and then to balance myself out, because now as an adult, I can't just eat junk food. I need to eat something healthy immediately after. Um, yeah, Trent's a twenty-year-old man now. He's not a nineteen-year-old little boy. And I have like the, he was <laughs> when he started this podcast. And I have the digestive issues of uh, of an old, old man of a middle-aged father. And so I ate some grapes to uh, to find an equilibrium. What color were they? Uh, purple, but I'm I'm I red. What what are they called? But I'm usually a green grape guy. That's understandable. That's fair. Um. Well, you want to start the episode? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm starting to feel a little spaced out after all of this uh, food conversation. And uh, hey, space! Oh! Yeah, I did it. Did and I. We have a movie podcast. And we're talking about Interstellar. Cut to the intro! Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week, who do we have, Trent? John Lee, assistant editor. Of what film, Trent? Interstellar, a movie I've not seen, but one that Parth likes a lot, yeah? Yeah, and uh, I think we had a pretty good conversation, didn't we? Yeah, wait. He was super nice. He had he was really charming and handsome. 
And he had a really cool Australian accent that I think the listeners' ear, ears will really enjoy. Yeah, he was a really, really nice guy. We really enjoyed talking with him. Fun fact, he follows me on Twitter, and sometimes he likes and even replies to some of my tweets. Okay, that's awesome. Um, Parth and John are, like, friends, I guess. I think the kids Associates. say besties. Oh, all right, Parth. I think you're being a little overbearing. And John, if you're listening, thanks for tuning in. And uh, this is, I mean... I'm not going to help you with that. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. That's staying in the edit. No. That's staying in the edit. Probably. Yeah, I have complete control over this episode. Trent's, all of Trent's mishaps because he's such an unprepared little shit. Yeah. Yeah. That stays in. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm excited to watch this film because we'll be discussing it next week. I'll be, I'll have to. Ms. Parth just loves Christopher Nolan. I do. And Parth and his grubby little hands selects whatever films he wants for the pod. My hands are grubby. Yeah, so, I mean, me and we can cut to that. Yeah, I think we can cut to the interview. Um, yeah, is there anything you want to say about this interview? Yeah, uh, we got some good stories, right, I think, about celebrities? We've got, well, well, we'll get to that, but, um, I mean, among all of the Nolan interstellar talk, you also get to hear how the Truman Show was re-edited, Yeah, that basically. was interesting. Also about his work on Inception. Yeah, he, 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 you, you get to hear how he had his way with the movie for about four months, and then... He had it in the palm of his hand. On top of that, maybe you'll just hear about, you know, a little story about a, a, a Parth Marate favorite in terms of celebrities... Tom Cruise. It's, I'm going to edit that out. It's a Tom Cruise anecdote. All right. That's not good. Okay. Well, I was trying to give some mystery and alert. All right. Uh, cue the intro. I mean, fuck. Not that. We already did that. The interview sound effect. The, fi- the film The film through the film projector thing. All right. Yeah. Uh, c- uh, cut to the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with John Lee. He has worked on such projects as Mission Impossible 2, The Matrix, The Dark Knight, and our film for today, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So just to start off, uh, what would you say your relationship with film was at a young age? Well, I do remember finding out, somebody told me when I was really young, hey, you know they uh, shoot most movies with one camera, and that was like, blew my mind at the time, because... You know, when you look at a movie, it seems to be all happening at once and it's like a complete thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, how do they do that? And then I became quite interested in in that whole idea. Like, how do they make them? So how did you find yourself editing anything professionally or unprofessionally for the first time? Well, I went to art school because I thought I wanted to paint or draw or something like that. But they had a film and video thing so for two years I kind of stumbled around not really knowing what I was doing and then in my third year I found they had film and video production and I just loved that you know they had some 16 mil cameras and uh editing equipment and um so you know we we shot little short films and and stuff like that and just learned watched a lot of you know stayed up all night watching French new wave movies like you do uh you know so it was yeah, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I thought this is what I want to do. 
But then it took me a while to get into editing. So I did some editing then, but it took me a while to come back to it because I kind of got a job in TV as a stagehand for a couple of years and an assistant floor manager. And then I was an electrician for a while on set. And kind of all of those experiences actually helped with um, being an editorial, I find, because you kind of, you know what the camera department's going through because you've been on set and you've seen, you know, I, I just remember being in the cutting room once and they're like, oh, why didn't those guys give us a slate? You know, we can't sync this thing up. Why, why didn't they give us a slate? And I'm like, well, because the camera's on a 50-foot crane and it's over a cliff and, you know, they mm. couldn't get a slate in there. So just deal with it, you know? Mm. So, um, yeah, it took me a while. A, a friend of mine who was an assistant director actually uh, got a job as an assistant editor on Peter Weir's film Fearless and, and they needed um, – like a PA, and I was 30 years old at the time. They said, look, we need, just need someone young to come and get lunch for people. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. So, you know, that was really, um, really fantastic um, experience. So, you know, they didn't pay me for a while, and then they paid me a couple of hundred bucks to get lunch for people, but they taught me how to be an assistant editor as well. So I learned, you know, how to file trims. It was in the film days. So I learned how to file trims and everything. And um, just learned as much as I could. I, I got a whole lot of editing books and I read up about it. And I kind of, I was a smart ass, you know, I'd come in and tell people how they should be doing things. And they're like, hey, we've, we've been doing this forever and you, you just got here. But, you know, I was just very interested in it. And then I ended up on Rapa Nui, which was a movieola show. So I had to learn how to, how to do that. They were English editors and so they have a different system than the American. This is all in Australia, by the way. Um, so... This, they have a different system. The English system is different than the American system. Is it is it so, still different or has that changed over time? I think it's changed. You know, the American slating system, they do the scene numbers. Of, you know, 123 is scene 123 and then the next thing is 123A and 123B. The English and Australian system, like the first shot is one and the second shot is two. Mm-hmm. And the only good thing about that is you can have, everyone can bet on what's the, what's the highest number we're going to get to on this film? You know, Mm -hmm. generally people put $5 in and say, I think we're going to get to, you know, 1,026 or something. But the American system I find is better for um, certainly an editorial because you can look at the slate and know where it kind of goes in general. Was the physical process of like cutting and taping film what attracted you to the editing department? And how have your feelings changed with the invent of digital editing? Yeah, I, I liked all of that. It it was it seems so archaic now, but I mean, certainly on Chris Nolan's films, we still do it. So mm-hmm. uh, we we still do all of that stuff that I was doing back then. So it hasn't really gone away for me. But when other people see it, if they happen to walk past our room and they look in, they're like, "Holy hell! What are you guys doing?" Because it looks like we're working in a museum. You know, we've got flatbeds and benches, and people are winding film and. And taping it with sticky tape, basically. But yeah, the tactile, all of that was fun. You know, as an assistant, you would, you know, you'd be rewinding film and filing trims and trying to find that one frame that nobody could find. Because, you know, I mean, in those days, you know, the editor, you always had to carry a notebook and you had to be really organized um, because the editor would call you in to his room and he'd say, I need the two frame tail trim of. 0083 you know he'd give you a whole bunch of numbers and he needs those actual frames before he can continue any further 
and you'd run out of the room and you knew where that was and you'd bring it back to him and say, here it is, if it was two frames or three frames or a roll or whatever. So if you ever went in without your notebook, that was a mistake because you can't remember whatever numbers. He might throw a whole lot of numbers at you. So you had to be really organized and be able to find things very quickly. So it's, it's kind of a different skill set. But some of it carries on to this, uh, to the digital age. You still have to be very organized the way you set up a project and everything. So sort of pivoting into our main topic of the day, uh, you've started, I believe, working with uh, on Chris Nolan's movies with Batman Begins and have since worked on every single one of his movies. And we were wondering, how did you come to start that relationship? Well, I work with Lee Smith, or I have done. Um, Lee Smith is Chris's editor, or has been since Batman Begins. So I've done a lot of films with Lee before then. We did Master and Commander. We did a whole lot of little Australian films. I think after Master and Commander, Chris saw that film and was really impressed with it, and he wanted Lee to do Batman Begins. So, you know, and I go everywhere Lee goes. Uh, like he puts, he used to put me into his contract. Um, you know, it's just a comfort thing. If you go into another country and you, you've got to edit something, it's stressful. So if you have the people that you're used to around you. So he would put me in his contract and, and say, look, that's a deal breaker. He's coming with me. And, and so they said, yeah, that's great. So I ended up on Batman Begins. And then we, we went from film to film. We did other things in between. Chris kind of does a film every two years. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, Tenet Lee wasn't available. But by then, I think Chris, well, the, Chris's um, whole process is so complicated with IMAX and 70 mil. Like nobody does that, or hardly anybody. I mean, Quentin Tarantino shoots has shot in 70 mil. Paul Thomas Anderson, but it's not. It's, it's not common. It's, it's not common. It's like a cottage industry kind of thing now. Um, you know, it used to be common in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, or something but so you know I know how to do it and the team that we've put together knows how to do it so when Lee wasn't available he called me and said you've got to do Tenet we'll get another editor you know whatever um, so that's what we did and and that was uh, that was fun. So can you explain the general responsibilities of the associate uh, and or uh, assistant editors compared to their to the editor themselves? Yeah I mean Lee, uh, you know, on Interstellar, for example, he he's editing the film and I uh, basically take everything that could bother him away from him. So mm. all, all of Chris's films, like not to just talk of Interstellar, they all have something crazy about them, which is kind mm. of the challenge. I mean, Prestige was almost the most normal film that we did, but everything else, it's like, hey, time's going to go backwards and forwards, or we're going to shoot it in 70 mil, but IMAX, but we're going to run the cameras backwards, or, you know, uh, we're going to shoot Vista Vision, we're going to shoot Phantom Camera. There's always something crazy, and it falls on me to figure out how we're going to do that and how we're going to integrate it in there. And also because we follow a film post-production pathline where we cut the negative and everything like in the old days, because Chris, you know, is a firm believer in film and in future proofing things. Like, you know, his thing is that if you wanted, you could go to the vaults of Warner brothers and get the cut negative of Casablanca mm-hmm. and whatever you could make a 4k or an 8k or a whatever in the future is going to be the standard if you have a um, cut negative, that's going to be the best quality you can get. And probably Casablanca, I might be controversial here, but Casablanca is probably going to look better, you know, in 20 years than Star Wars, like the fourth Star Wars or the first one, whichever way you want to look at it. 
Mm-hmm. Just remember that was all there was all this new digital technology and everything. Right. And it was all the special editions. Yeah. But like, is that the best picture quality that you can possibly get? You know, like a 2K DI, is that that probably not? So you'll end up Casablanca might look better than than Star Wars, for example. Is that mm-hmm. controversial? Am I gonna get in trouble? Probably. I believe George Lucas is outside your house with a he's, sniper rifle. Yeah, he's on the phone. <laughs> exactly. His lawyers will be contacting your lawyers. Yeah, so sort of speaking on the medium, I mean, I believe Interstellar was 35mm, 70mm, and IMAX. Um, and if you could just explain what your, pro- like, the literal process of working with these film negatives is, like, what what do you do when you get that footage? Uh, I think uh, Interstellar was mainly 35mm, and then IMAX for quite a few sequences. I think probably almost half the film... Maybe not that much on Interstellar was IMAX and the rest was 35mm. Certainly the later films, we shot a lot more IMAX on Dunkirk, for example, because there was not much dialogue in it. Uh, So that's another thing about IMAX. They're very loud cameras. So a film like Interstellar, you want to do IMAX because it's got to be that event kind of film where you've got this black hole and these spaceships and, you know, the magnificence of space. But you've also got people talking in tiny little spaceships, you know, and you can't have mm-hmm. this camera that sounds like a blender in there with them. Um, right. and, and Chris doesn't like to do ADR, which I, I tend to agree with. Like, if you can avoid doing ADR, the actors' performances on the day are always better. So what would happen is we would shoot 35 mil for everything that involved dialogue, like as a rule. And then all the huge things we could do with IMAX. So you would have that dust storm sequence. I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue in there. There's people yelling and whatnot, but you could do that with IMAX. And Hoyter was very good at hand-holding the camera, which is crazy because those things, if you've seen them, they're really heavy. And they, they make a cut-down version for him, but it's massive. And he hand-holds that thing. He started mm-hmm. on the last couple of films. It's kind of amazing. So uh, Interstellar is very v- VFX-heavy, and we were wondering on uh, films that you're editing with a lot of visual effects, how does that change your approach since you don't have the the finished version in front of you, essentially? Well, actually, it was visual effects heavy um, in terms of a Chris Nolan film, but in terms of a regular movie, none of his films are really visual effects heavy, I would say. Like, it's not like a Marvel movie. It's it's not like an Avengers movie or, you know, I'm working on Black Adam at the moment. It's not like that. Where yeah, I believe it only had like 700 vfx shots in interstellar yeah yeah you know and the other films have had less than that because you know chris's philosophy is try and shoot it for real as much as possible um and you probably heard interstellar like inside the cockpit of those uh, spaceships you know other filmmakers would say well let's just build a a, you know a set and we'll build it out of wood or something and we'll put the actors in it and we'll have a blue screen out there and we can put whatever stars we want later. But Chris didn't do that. He had huge projectors out there and they were projecting the stars. So, you know, we went and visited that set. You have to climb up ladders and it takes a long time. You get up into this thing and it's on a gimbal and everything, so it moves. And you look out the window and you think you're in space. It's kind mm-hmm. of amazing. And so for the actors, I mean, actors are great. They can do what they can pretend they're anywhere, but... but these guys, they probably were acting and thinking they were in space. It, you know, it just looked so amazing. So there were there were places where we would have had visual effects if someone else had been making the movie like that. They would have had a blue screen out there and they would, we would have had to replace all of that. But 
there were obviously visual effects like uh, Dean Egg worked with Kip Thorne to to make what what does a black hole look like. Mm-hmm. And of course, being Chris Nolan, it's not like, hey, let's just make up what we think a black hole would look like. It's like, let's get this astrophysicist to tell us what actually a black hole will actually look like and then have a visual effects company build it. And so um, that was kind of amazing to have an astrophysicist kind of like all of this stuff's impossible. But if it was if it was possible, this is how it would be. So you've spoken a little bit about the tools that you use, but if you could sort of go in specific about both on Interstellar and, and just on general movies, because it seems like Chris Nolan movies are a little bit different from other movies. Uh, but if you could go into a little bit of depth about like the tools that you use and work with to edit. Yeah, well, we cut on Avid and, you know, what happens is we shoot on film and we have to finish on film, but it would be crazy to cut on film. You know, so people did it, of course, and we did it. it. It just takes a long time. And obviously, if you have a visual effect, you don't actually have that on film yet. So there is a moment where you're cutting in the Avid, you can have a quick time of the visual effect in there. So that's what we do. We work in the Avid and, and we cut to a shot that, hey, this has to have a black hole in the background. And we give that quick time to the visual effects company and say, put the black hole in the background and they'll do something rough and send it back to us and we drop it in. So now we can play the film on the Avid and it looks okay. It makes sense because if, if this thing's not there, it doesn't make sense. And, and then we just keep making them better. And then obviously at a certain point, they need to get the film elements of that and they need to make, uh, they need to make the visual effect properly. Of course, we have the added issue of if it's a IMAX sequence, they have to make the visual, they have to scan in 8K and they have to do a visual effect that, that is good enough for an IMAX film, but also then we have to make another version for 35 mil because mm-hmm. on these films we do two negative cuts. One's a 15 perf negative cut and one's a 35 mil negative cut. So they have to deliver the visual effects twice, which is not as crazy as it sounds because they'll do one that's in like the four by three aspect ratio and then they just take that and they crop the top. Scale it down. One. Yeah, scale it. Yeah, you're going to lose some sky and some, and and the bottom area, but you're not losing any uh, important action. I, I wanted to ask about on all like the digital copies of like the movies these worked with on IMAX. The the black bars are still there. It doesn't uh, switch the aspect ratio. So I was wondering, but on the Blu-ray it does. So I was wondering, do you have to like go through and manually just like move all of the shots to make sure that they, I guess, for that 35 millimeter edit of it. Actually, uh, good question. Um, yeah, for the Blu-rays, we do a version that, that pops in and out of the correct aspect ratio. So it kind of gives that IMAX experience. We found working on the Avid, it's best to just not worry about that. And it's best to just cut the movie to tell the story. And so, like, we tell a cine the IMAX so that it's full frame. And we tell a cine the 35 mil so that it's full frame. But the two aspect ratios don't match. But we don't worry about that when we're working because to do that, you know, when you're just changing things every two seconds, it would take for it would take a team of people following behind to make it all mm-hmm. look how it's going to look in an IMAX theater, which doesn't make any sense because you're looking on a TV monitor. When you look at this effect of the of the um, aspect ratio going bigger and smaller on a TV monitor, because it's very small and it's in front of your face, you kind of go, oh, that's not going to work. This is going to be really distracting. And then when you go to an IMAX theater, you don't actually notice it's happening. It's more of a, it's more of a feeling. 
you mm. like you really have to because you have to lift your head up and stare at the top of the room to see that it's happening. So it's more of a feeling. You cut to the you know the expanse of space or the expanse of the wheat fields with the drone flying around, and you get this feeling. It's more of a feeling than oh they they've gone to IMAX here. I was wondering how thorough the direction you receive uh, is and whether that's coming from the lead editor or if you're in direct contact with the director and if you're collaborating with the other editors at all. Well, on Chris's films, he just has one editor. He has uh, Lee and Jen did Tenet. What happens is when they're shooting, we're cutting. And then, oh, that's another thing that Chris doesn't like. Chris has all these ideas that other filmmakers you know don't bother with or whatever and i kind of think a lot of them are correct but but other people might think they're crazy like there's this there's this thing where you when you make a movie and you do an editor's cut and then when the director comes in you know he spent six months shooting a movie and he's been so busy and so tired obviously they they, they generally have a week off and that's when you get the editor's cut ready. And uh, and I've been to a ton of these where the director comes and he goes, okay, show me what you got. And you play a two and a half hour movie or a three hour movie because generally it's too long and it's going to be terrible. I right. mean, it, it's not actually terrible, but it's going to be terrible for him or her because in their head, they've been thinking, this is what I'm making, but they haven't seen any of it. And now they're seeing it and it's not at all what they thought. So generally... I've been to some of those screenings, I won't name any names, where the director's walked out, looked like he's going to faint. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, that is the worst thing I've ever seen. Let's start work. So what Chris does is he doesn't have an editor's cut screening. He just comes in and says, let's start at scene one or scene 96 or whatever it is that we have to start with. And he'll look at scene one. Play me scene one and Lee will play him scene one and he'll say, yeah, pretty good, but here's what we're going to do. And then they start working on it. And then they work on scene two and et cetera. And so he hasn't had to put himself through this, this uh, terrible ordeal of watching something that, you know, it, he's not going to like it because it's not going to be what he imagined. It, it doesn't matter how much of a genius editor you are. It's not going to be what he wanted. Mm-hmm. That's sad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So going back to Interstellar a little bit and then also just broader into the rest of his filmography, uh, they're pretty script heavy or uh, there's a big reliance on script and i was wondering is there any point in interstellar or in any other of the movies that you've worked on that you can talk about where you've seen things sort of structurally move in the editing process i I think interstellar is probably one of his more linear movies but yeah yeah it it is uh well you know uh lee wasn't available on inception for example so i i edited that for four months until he was available and then um and then he took over so, you know, and people said, oh, my God, how did you how did you edit on Inception? That's so confusing, that movie. And it's like, well, it actually isn't. Just like you say, it's it's scripted. You know, these scenes happen in this order because it's in Chris's brain. He wrote it that way. And so what I thought is, you know, when scene 96 comes in, cut scene 96, you know, and then when scene 97 comes in, cut that and join it together and see if it works kind of thing. But to to your point, what what happened with like inception for example is yes things would have to move like i remember the ski sequence in inception because i think chris is a fan of james bond films like that ski ski sequence in inception is so cool it was really long and really Mm -hmm. involved uh and 
it just it you know in the end it's too heavy for for the movie like there's too much of it so it came down and then things moved but not a lot mm-hmm. you know i've i've been on films where where like the truman show for example by peter weir great that movie. was kind of, yeah it's a great movie but that was fun to be in the editing room and i was like a, an assistant editor editor on that uh, just to see what happened with the truman show is that if you've ever got the original script of that, it's set in New York and you only find out that the main character is in kind of this 24-7 kind of um, big brother type TV show, like 45 minutes into the movie. And it's amazing. Like mm-hmm. when you read the script, it blows your mind. But Peter found that what's going to happen with word of mouth is people are going to say, hey, have you seen the Truman Show? Yeah, what's it about? Oh, it's about this guy that's in a TV show and he doesn't know it. So you've got a spoiler right there. And so you can't have the audience sit there for 45 minutes before it happens. So we ended up making that happen in the first scene. Mm-hmm. And it was it was crazy. And I remember everyone thinking, you know, Lee was one of the editors on that too. So wait, so it was shot as though it would happen 45 minutes in and then that was a change in editing? Yeah, yeah it, it was. We had, you know, the guy, they, they changed it from New York to Florida or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that seaside kind of place with the pink houses, the weird looking uh, place Um, because they realized we have to make it smaller. But I mean, when you think about it, New York is great. Imagine having a TV show where you had tens of thousands of people in on it. You know, you could probably get away with actually doing that if you could pull it off because they'd be living in an area where, yeah, maybe they didn't have to travel anywhere whatever but they decided well let's make it smaller we'll make it a little town that we can deal with but yeah they moved like the ending to the beginning and and we would go to a screening and go oh that's how it is now you know i think the first shot is christoph uh the ed harris character kind of saying hey truman and you know immediately and then it's just following the adventure so you touched on this a little bit uh so when you're editing scene 96 are you thinking about uh, you, the methods in which you use to edit scene 95? Um, and are you trying to form any sort of continuous style in your cuts, or is it more like there's a right and a wrong way to edit? Um, I think the first thing is to just cut the scene how it is. Because the thing is, um, it's no good agonizing about should I, how should I start this scene or whatever. If you don't have the other scenes, just cut it. It's fine. You haven't broken anything. You can change it later you know, when the other scene comes in, you kind of have to remember things like, oh, why am I spending a lot of time on wide shots of this house, for example, when the rest of the movie's set in this house? Like, we know the house by now. So, you know, you, things like that you have to think about. I can get away with being in tighter here because we've already, we already know where we are and who the people are. Moving a little bit away from Interstellar, but not too far away from Chris Nolan, uh, you've worked on all three of the Dark Knight movies, um, and we were wondering what those were like, and especially specifically with the Dark Knight, I believe that was the first narrative feature film to use IMAX, so uh, if you could speak anything on that. Yeah, that was the first narrative that used IMAX. I think we had about 30 minutes of IMAX. It was certain sequences that we had planned. Originally, we planned um, the bank heist at the beginning, and they decided to do do, um, a prologue. 
which was the bank heist right. I don't know if you remember that and it came out like six months before the movie mm-hmm. and he's done that with all of his films since then and um, it's kind of fun because I think we were like six when that prologue came out oh okay cool so you, you weren't allowed to see it no I think so oh, okay but it was a crazy time because people came dressed as the Joker I remember we went to to tech check the theater and there was lines around the block of people dressed like freaks mm-hmm. and it was like holy hell what is happening here but yeah they were fun films uh we shot batman begins in england mostly so we were in london which is crazy because it's supposed to look like gotham city but um there we were at shepherd and studios and everything uh so we were there for 14 months on that went to chicago for three weeks uh and then um uh, dark night we shot in hong kong and london again and chicago so, you know, there's always some location work on these movies. But after Batman Begins, we'd always come back to L.A. for post-production. So, you know, for sanity, I've quite enjoyed that. You you get to go somewhere fun, like on Tenet, we got to go to Estonia and Italy and London, and then come back to L.A. Is that common to move where the project is going? Are you, like, just continuously editing as they're shooting? It depends what the budget is and what the director wants. You know, there's... People work differently all the time. You know, some people are into, you know, picks or one of those systems where you can, you can, the editor can be working anywhere. It's just, I'll send me a cut every now and then and I'll look at it on my iPad type thing. Mm-hmm. Chris isn't one of those guys. Chris will always want us to be there and we will travel and he'll want to have dailies and he'll want to have dailies on film. And, you know, back to that, that's what I do is I figure out how can we have dailies in Estonia uh, on, in 70 millimeter? And it's not like, oh, I'll call the 70 millimeter theater in Tallinn, you know, because there isn't one, you know, nobody's doing this. So, and the more the years go by, less and less people are doing it. But after a while, we kind of know people and, you know, I'll call someone in London and say, hey, do you want to get your 70 mil projector and take it to Tallinn? And so we'll build a theater somewhere. And Chris likes us to be sitting next to him when we have dailies and he'll tell us things. And then you'll know. Uh, you just know, if you're there, you'll know stuff. Like a lot of productions these days don't have dailies anymore, which is depressing. Because, you know, with things digital, they also shoot a lot more. So dailies would be like six hours anyway. So at the end of your day, no one's going to sit in the room for six hours. But what happens on a Nolan film is we, they shoot and we're working nearby or sometimes like exactly nearby. Like we'll, uh, we used to sh- uh, shoot in this um, air balloon hangar in Cardington in Bedfordshire. That's where all the sets were for The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. And we built a cutting room right in there. So if we wanted to go to set, we would walk out the door and walk down the stairs and we'd be on the set. And so at night we would have dailies and uh, we could hear what trials and tribulations the crew had been through. And, you know, every now and then Chris would lean over and say something about a performance or about an idea that he had. And and that would save time for when uh, when you finally got that in the system and, we had to cut it yeah so dailies is good and you know and if if we had any problems um chris would always want us to to take him aside and say hey it'd be great to get a wide shot here or can you get a close-up of this and because you're right there he could come and have a look and go oh yeah i'll do that tomorrow you know or whatever or no i don't think we need it you know whatever the case may be it's just very good to be there so you most recently worked on Tenet, which spends a lot of time in reverse. 
And does that create does that create a like comically complicated editing situation, or is it uh, is it ironically n- n- not as hard as it seems? No, it's uh, the first one you said. Comically <laughs> difficult, sure. Comically difficult, yes. It was. So what normally happens on these films? I come on like months early because Chris will call me and say I've got this idea, and he'll tell me, and it's all it's never. Oh, we're going to shoot this romantic comedy, and it's going to be these two people. It's always something crazy mm-hmm. and complicated, and we want to run the cameras backwards in that case. So for me, technically, I have to figure out, oh, well, I talked to the camera department. Yes, they, they can turn the motor around, but now the key numbers on the film are going to be on the wrong side, so we're not going to be able to read the key numbers for what we do. So we have to come up with systems to get the information that we need, like the metadata into the Avid, so that when we do a negative cut, even if the bit of film looks like it's upside down, it's actually the right way around. Like when we first started, they were shooting things and the Telecine house, for example, just went, oh, this looks wrong. And they put it all the other way around and we got the dailies back and went, these look great. This looks weird. And then uh, Hoyter came in and said, hey, that's going the wrong way. Uh, Jen and I got, you know, when she was cutting that, we would often just sit there and play everything backwards to see what they actually did on set. And then we would play it forwards to realize what was happening. It was actually, it was mind boggling. But the good thing about it in Tenet was that we would shoot a film backwards and then, then we would shoot it forwards or vice versa. Like the car chase happens twice mm. uh, from different points of view and the, the fight in the vault. But you know, the actors, uh, they got very good at it because they had to be able to walk and fight backwards. Sometimes the camera would be going forwards in the backwards scene and they would have to do it backwards, but then it would go backwards in the backwards scene. They'd have to go forwards. So I don't know how everyone kept this straight on set. When they used to come in from dailies, they would just, their minds would be spinning, but they managed to keep it all together somehow with the script supervisor and everybody. But I know from, from what happened, they'd say, Hey, we've got to shoot this thing. And they would all stop and have to talk. Wait, are the bullet holes in the glass yet? Or is he not? Or is he unshot the glass? Um, so we have to have the bullet holes and he unshoots them? Or does he do that later and he actually shoots them? And then do we load the camera backwards or forwards? And so they had different magazines for what they were going to do. And they would have to have this whole discussion before they figured out what they were doing. And then if there were, you know, 300 extras or whatever, they'd have to tell oh red soldiers you're running backwards in this scene very complicated comically what you said comically uh complicated so uh tenet is a very trippy film and another trippy film that you worked on is the matrix and i'm a huge fan of that movie uh so anything you could say on that would be most welcome oh yeah the matrix was fun it was like i was like a second assistant on that i was like conforming 35 mil and um you know so they shot it on film and then it comes into the avid i was kind of an avid assistant and a film assistant because there was a time where it was handy to be able to do both and uh, all of our screenings were on film so we would um conform the film you know we get a list from the avid and then we cut the film and sticky tape it together and basically have screening so that was a lot of what i was doing on that it was fun we shot it in sydney it was certainly ahead of its time zach the editor won an academy award which was amazing the two directors were great it was a fun 
an exciting time. In Australia at that time, which is kind of how I got to where I am, is, is it depended how the Australian dollar was, but sometimes American films would suddenly all head to Australia because, mm-hmm. you know, it made sense budget-wise. And, you know, they did Superman and they did Three Matrixes and Mission Impossible 2 and Red Planet. I mean, it was just a ton of big movies coming through. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about Mission Impossible 2 as well, just because I'm I'm a famously a big Mission Impossible fan, um, if, if you remember much about that. Yeah, Mission Impossible 2 was fun once again. Uh, I was an avid assistant. Well, I was, the f- I was like the Australian first assistant. There was an American first assistant on it, and, and we had a film first assistant as well because we were conforming and having dailies and everything. And um, it was fun as well. It was a big, crazy thing. John Woo was very clever, and... Um, I became friends with the uh, armorer on the show who was who was fun. There's a lot of just fun people um and and Tom Cruise is very intense. Oh, do you have a Tom Cruise story cuz I would love to hear it if if you could say it. Well, he he's just very he always had like this entourage and he always looked like he absolutely knew absolutely what he was doing. He does. He knows what he's doing. He doesn't just yeah. look like it. Yeah. It's like it's kind of scary. He's just like walking like with a purpose everywhere. I'm like, I kind of admire the dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember one time in dailies. Uh, I hope this is a good story. Um, yes, Tom Cruise. So the second unit had shot this, um, the stunt double dangling from a helicopter above Sydney. It was an amazing shot. And Tom Cruise was up the back and everyone was going, wow, this is amazing. And Tom Cruise jumped up and said, I look great. What do I do next? As if that was him there. But, I mean, I know he didn't think that was him. He knew it was a stunt guy. But he was so excited about the shot. So, yeah, we all laughed. We thought that was funny. Yeah, he's a cool dude. It seems like it. Uh, so when you're editing, I mean, uh, credit to you and the films you've worked on, but some a, a number of them have been considered, like, triumphs. And I'm wondering, during the editing process, are you desensitized to see the true quality of this movie since you're seeing them in unfinished form? Or when you see the dailies, are you like, shit, like, I'm really, I'm really in for something special? Yeah, that's a tricky one, because I guess you you never know how it's going to turn out. And the amount of, like, the amount of work you have to do on a film is the same, whether it's a bad film or a good film. Mm, And when you're in the trenches just doing it, you're just doing whatever. But certainly, like, I treat every film I'm on like it's going to be the best film ever because it's the only way to get up in the morning. Yeah. Um, And and some of them that I've worked on, luckily, like you say, have turned out to possibly be the best film ever. Like, you know, Master and Commander's pretty amazing movie, for example. And The Truman Show is amazing and The Matrix is amazing. You know, I've been lucky that I've worked on some really great movies and a lot of and and Interstellar is my favorite Nolan film actually. Uh the experience of working on it, working in Canada. It was it was like the most moving screenplay to me. Like, you know, screenplays are often because it's a technical document really, they're often not it's not like a novel. You're not going to start crying. But I did actually, I'm going to admit it, I actually wept when I first read Interstellar because of the father-daughter thing. I had a, my daughter was nine at the time. And I just, it just hit me. Like I remember um, Chris called and said, we're doing this film. And of course, they never send you a script. It's always on red paper and no one can get a copy. And 
I so I had to go into the office and sign my life away to read it. But I remember sitting in the office sobbing, and I went. Chris said, "What did you think?" And I said, "My God, I'm still crying." Um, so he was pleased about that. But I, I actually think that uh, Interstellar was um, the original script that his brother wrote. It was a father and a son, and then Spielberg really? was going to do it at, at yeah. one point, and then it that didn't happen. So it went back to Paramount, and then Chris said, "Well, I'll do it." And he changed it to the daughter. And there's something just very moving about that. I mean, th- that film gets me every time. And the score by Hans Zimmer, like you just have to listen to that. And it has the emotion in it, the organ and everything. And when she runs runs out after him, when he's, when he's driving down the street and then it cuts to the rocket ship taking off, uh, is just heart-wrenching. Um, I went off on a tangent there, but... Um, what I'm saying is that was a film where working on it, I knew it was going to be amazing. But, you know, there are things like Inception, for example. Like, I don't feel that that film got the love that it should have got. Like, Really? Yeah. I mean, people love it, but also people don't like it. But I, mm-hmm. like, it wasn't nominated for any editing awards, for example. Like, Lee wasn't nominated for anything. Uh, I, it's like, really, that is an editor's film. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, Very like much that. So. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was nominated and won for Dunkirk, which is great as well. But yeah, I, I feel like Inception, when I was working on it, I thought this is a really special movie. And, and um, I don't know, to me, uh, I still think it's great. It definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it again recently a couple of times and it's 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 very moving as well. Well, speaking of great things, Trent, do you want to ask the big... Kahuna. The big, the big Kahuna final question is: What is the last great film that you have watched? And it can be a first viewing or a revisit. The last great film that I watched was Nobody. I, yeah, and I wish I'd seen it in a cinema, but still, we're all pandemic-y. So, uh, but I, you know, I, I watched it. I watched it on TV, uh, watched it on a TV monitor and, um, I watched it twice, you know, I watched it one night and then I watched it the next day because, um, I just thought that is pretty amazing. I I like those sort of films. Like, and then if I could just say my favorite films to just like, if you're ever a bit depressed or something and you want like a pick me up is like the born identity, the born films, the first three of them, like they'll always pick you up. Masterclass. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's take a, just while we're here one one more all time suggestion just just for the listeners at home just a little, little sprinkle final treat what's like what's your what's your rainy day film um a rainy day film hmm it it's it's yeah well a James Bond film would be good I really love I mean I worked on one of you them, worked but, on um, one Spectre. yeah which was fun I mean to work on a Bond film. That's like always like I've always wanted to I've always wanted to walk, work on a Bourne film, but I also enjoy watching them so much that I'd hate to be offered one mm-hmm. because then you'd be like, oh, I'm not going to enjoy this. I thought that with Matrix right. when they when they offered it to me, I was like, oh, now I'm not going to get to. It'd be, shitting, it'd be shitting where you eat, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, nice James Bond film like uh, uh, Casino Royale, that's that's always good. Uh, Skyfall. Skyfall as well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no. Uh, so that was John Lee, and he worked on, you know, a few movies you might have heard of. The Dark Knight, The Matrix, Mission Possible 2, and 
uh, our film for today, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Thanks. Thanks again so much for being here. Thank you. It's it's been fun. Thank you for having me. Parth, wasn't that a delightful interview? I know I really enjoyed myself. The questions, the, the answers, where to begin? I know. I, well, those are the two things that there were in this interview. Um, yeah, no, that was an that was an excellent time. I had a great time. Good. Yeah. No, it seemed like you had a good time. So, Parth, riddle me this: Do you think I'll like Interstellar? Uh, I think you will like it, but you will have problems that we can get into. In our episode for next week. Yeah, yeah, good transition. Uh, all I know is that McConaughey cries and that Matt Damon's like kind of there in the end. Um, sort of right. Um, yeah, sure, we'll leave it at that. But uh, yeah, thank you to John Lee so much for talking with us. He was and for liking Parth's tweets and and occasionally replying. I agree. We shouldn't have fourteen South Park movies. Wait, there are fourteen South Park movies. You, you, we'll get into it off off air, Trent. Okay. Um, yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for if you made it this far. Thanks for doing so. Oh yeah, you end of the episode, people. We love you the most. Yeah, we don't know how many of you there are, but we appreciate your time. Uh, you know, try sticking around till the final, the end of the sixty minutes. I don't know the how long. Final countdown. How long is this episode? I don't know. They're, we are usually around an hour. I, I don't yeah, think it's 40 asking. 40 minutes to an hour. I think anywhere over an hour is kind of asking a bit much. And I know we and break. We've asked a bit much a few times. I know but... we break that rule sometimes, but if it's a good interview, it's a good interview. All right. Uh, yeah. So next week, you can listen to our interstellar discussion. And then the week after, we're breaking our. We're breaking the one-hour rule, aren't we? Yes, we're breaking our rule with our Kid Detective interview with writer-director Evan Morgan, who, much like John Lee, was a very nice man, and our show's first director. Not our first writer, because we had screenwriter Dave Cyrus. Yes, but our first director, which I would say is a pretty big... Step. uh, Yeah, milestone for us. Yeah. So... We got we got second unit director. We've been heading. We we've had assistant director. We've been heading in this direction, but here we, we are, have fully arrived, and it was a good one. Yeah, I'd agree. So I think that's about it. Remember to go to Apple Podcasts, give a good, give us a good review, uh, rate us five stars, uh, follow us on Spotify, follow us on all of our social media. We got Twitter, we got Instagram. Those are the two that we have. No, but Parth's really not kidding about the, uh, if you, really, if you're at the end of the episode, like the last 30 seconds, if you've come this far, yeah, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review, just write a few words, so we'd really appreciate it. Okay. It really does help. Okay. It really, does help. It, really it really helps. Like, we would like it if you did that. Please do it. Pretty please. Pretty, pretty please. Okay. All right, bye, guys. I got to catch the Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. Parth and I uh, just found out we're, we're both going to see Suicide Squad today. and Independently we of each other. We didn't even uh, we, we, we didn't even plan it. It just happened. That's nature, yep. baby. Do you think it'll be better than the Suicide Squad? The Suicide Can't Squad? Can't see how it wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Goodbye.